Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 4, verse 12. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 12. Last time we saw that Peter and John were arrested for preaching about Jesus. When brought before the Sanhedrin, Peter spoke boldly the truth of Jesus. We will continue to look at Peter's powerful speech to the Sanhedrin as we resume our study in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now that is heresy in the Jewish language. That is heresy to them. To them, there was salvation through the sacrifices that they were offering. And of course, today with them, there is salvation through the good works that they do. But Peter boldly proclaims the truth. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Listen, no other name, not Mary, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not Mahatma Gandhi, not Ramakrishna, not Joseph Smith, not Mary Baker Eddy, or whoever or whatever. You see, we can never consent to considering any other name to be equal with that name, Jesus of Nazareth. No one other, I mean no other, has solved the problem of death. No other has broken through uh, this ghastly terror that hangs over the human race. Only Jesus of Nazareth. God has made him the head of the corner, and there is no other name by which we can be saved. Now, many believe that all are saved, and that there are many roads that lead to heaven, and that you can take the best of all faiths and blend them all together into one. But those who believe that, unfortunately, will bear the consequences of their belief. You see, this is not the teaching of God. That is not the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now we see two misconceptions that they had regarding Peter and John. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. They perceived, but their perception was wrong. They perceived that these men were uneducated and untrained. Now, they did not have degrees, they were right. I mean, they didn't have degrees from the Hebrew University, but they were far from uneducated and untrained. They had had three years private tutoring by the greatest master who had ever lived. Far from being uneducated and untrained, they were probably the most scholarly in that whole group. They knew the scriptures so well. They had such a vast understanding and comprehension of the Word of God. Well, that was their first misconception. And it reminds us that God uses ordinary people. I mean, do you ever feel like maybe you're not special enough to be used by God? Maybe you've got it backwards. God wants to use ordinary people so the world will see that it is not us, but it is God's work. 
Listen again to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 through 29. It's the scripture that we read earlier in our scripture reading. Listen to it. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God uses ordinary people that are sold out to Jesus. Well, here's the second misconception. It's at the end of verse 13. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now, there was something about these men, of course. They realized that these men had been with Jesus. But you see, they put Peter and John's relationship with Jesus in the past tense. What they didn't know is that Jesus was standing right beside them, prompting them in what to say. Jesus had said to them, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be there right in the midst. And Jesus said to these apostles, in fact, one of the last things that he said to them was go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's what they were beginning to do. And then Jesus said, and lo, I am with you always. So to think that they had been with Jesus, past tense, was wrong. It was a misconception on their part. The presence of the Lord was with them. And the fact the presence of the Lord was with them throughout the rest of their life. Even as the presence of the Lord is with us, and he is there for us to call upon him at any time that we have need, that we have help, or we're in trouble. The name of Jesus and the power that's in that name is just as effective today as it was in that day. Hebrews 13 and verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the second misconception is that they had been with Jesus. Uh, listen, they were with Jesus at that very moment. Well, verse 14 says, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them. Now, this lame man, you see, not only stood with Peter and John in the temple, we saw that last time, chapter 3 and verse 11, but he also stood with them in their trouble. Peter and John were in hot water here. I mean, this guy could have said, hey, I'm out of here. I mean, this is heavy. I'm getting out of here. Thanks for the healing, but I've got to go. But he didn't. He stood by Peter and John, even though he could have been executed with them. You see, it is easy to be friends in the temple, but you can only find out who your true friends are when you're in trouble. So too, you will be able to evaluate the depth of your friendship with Jesus by how willing you are to stand with him in times of testing and difficulty. So stand with the Lord. He stood with you, he stood for you, and he stands by you. But not only that, stand by your brothers and your sisters, even when they're blowing it, even when they're disobedient, even when they're sinning, even when they're in trouble, even when they are in hot water. Stand with them. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Well, I guess. I mean, what could they say? I mean, you can't say anything against that. I mean, here's evidence that they could not deny. 
I mean, you cannot deny the power of Jesus when this guy is standing there with a grin from ear to ear, and you know the lame condition that he had been in since he was born. Listen, what the church needs today is more lame men and women standing whole in its midst. That's the kind of evidence that cannot be denied. One of the most gifted expository preachers of our century was Dr. Harry Ironsides. He was pastor of the, the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. One day he was in San Francisco and he was standing out in the street with a band of Salvation Army people. And uh, they'd been singing praises to the Lord and then he gave the message. And when he made an appeal for people to come and to receive Christ, a blatant infidel came up to him and addressing all of the throng who were there, he said this, he said, I challenge this preacher to a debate. I will show you how the gospel that he preaches is dust and ashes. Dr. Ironsides replied, Sir, I accept your challenge. We will set the date and the place. The place will be in the Salvation Army Hall. The date will be tonight. I will bring with me 100 men who were in the depths of despair and darkness and were lifted into the marvelous life of the Son of God. You bring 100 men who have been saved by the gospel of infidelity, and we will have our debate tonight. Well, as you can imagine, this man never showed. You know, there's not even a song dedicated to infidelity. I mean, you could search the whole earth and never find 100 men who had been saved from darkness by the gospel of infidelity. And you know, Dr. Ironsides could just as easily and quickly have said, I will bring tonight 1,000 men in San Francisco who have been lifted up by the saving grace of the message of the Son of God. The living proof of a saved man or a saved woman is always the best argument. That's the kind of evidence that cannot be denied. And thank God for that evidence right here. So many of you were so lame as the result of your sins, messed up with drugs and alcoholism, with sex, you name it, and you were living such a lame life. But having come to Jesus Christ, he washed away all of the crud and the filth of the past, and now you stand with the children of God whole. People who used to know you as you were see you as you are now, and they can't say anything about the dramatic change that is so obvious. You're standing there whole. I mean, what can they say? The only thing they can say is it works. I mean, what can you say against it? There's nothing you can say when you see the lame standing whole. There isn't anything that can be said against it. That is always the most powerful witness that a church can have lame men and women standing whole in the midst of it. And I thank God for all of you who were so lame at one time, but now have been made whole through the power of that name, through the power of Jesus Christ. Light and darkness are not compatible. You don't have a dark light room. If you have a dark room and you bring the light into it, Light, by its very nature, dispels darkness. That is the reaction. They do not mutually exist. In the spiritual realm, spiritual light also dispels darkness, but sometimes there is a struggle. Whereas when you flip a switch in a room, light just takes over. When you flip the spiritual switch, even if the light is strong, even if the light is prominent, there is sometimes a struggle. 
And it is very interesting to watch the reaction when spiritual light is present with spiritual darkness. It is not always a pretty picture, but there is definitely a reaction. Anytime darkness comes into contact with light spiritually, there will be a reaction. The brighter the light, the stronger the reaction. I heard this week of a Christian businesswoman who had to travel a great deal in her business. She had to do an extensive amount of traveling across the country, and being a single young woman, somebody asked her this question. They said, do you ever find it a problem being an attractive young single woman traveling around the country in terms of uninvited male attention? And she smiled and she said, no. I usually just say five words, and when I say these five words, after that I never have any problem whatsoever. Well, she was asked, what are those five words? She said, well, here they are. Are you a born-again Christian? Those five words. I say those five words, and if there's any would-be pursuer with the wrong kind of motivation, that ends it. You see, life has come in contact with darkness. Are you a born-again Christian? She turns on the light, and it dispels darkness. Now, in chapter four of Acts, we have already seen that when the light is turned on in Jerusalem, the darkness, though clothed in religious garb, does react. Verse 15. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? Now, what do you do to these men? I mean, how do you stop men like that? You don't. You can't. Now, they're going to try to stop them, but they will not succeed. Saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Now, you see immediately the corruption of these guys' hearts, right? I mean, they acknowledge that a miracle genuinely happened, yet they refuse to submit to the God who worked the miracle. Verse 17, but so that it spreads no further among the people. Now, the rulers knew that they had to stop this Jesus movement. I mean, they thought they had stopped the Jesus movement when they got rid of Jesus, but they were mistaken, and now it's beginning to spread. But they want to suppress it from spreading any further among the people. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. Now, at this point, they didn't dare take any kind of drastic steps because the people would cause a disturbance if they did, and then that would bring the Romans down upon them, and they didn't want that to happen. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Now, notice how these men admit that this man was healed by the name of Jesus. You see, they realize that the power is in the name of Jesus. Now, you may not be able to grab the hand of a lame man and say to him, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. But there are other things that you can do in the name of Jesus. In Mark 9:41, Jesus said we can give a cold cup of water in his name. Every one of us can go to someone who is thirsty someone who needs a simple act of kindness shown to them and say, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus because he's blessed me so. Now, in Matthew 18 and verse 5, Jesus said that we could receive a little child in his name. 
And so you can sign up for the nursery and you can go out there and you can change diapers in the name of Jesus. Luke 24, 47 says that we can pronounce the remission of sins in his name. You see, you can be a champion of the gospel, a carrier of the good news to the person who is despairing and feeling that they have failed so miserably. You can lead them into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and you can say, in the name of Jesus, I want to tell you that your sin is truly forgiven and forgotten. Now, how did Luke, the author of the book of Acts, know the private discussions of the Sanhedrin? I mean, how did he know what they said when they were outside the hearing of Peter and John? Well, in all likelihood, there was a dynamic, brilliant young rabbi present among the Sanhedrin named Saul of Tarsus, who later told Luke. Even though Saul, a member of the Sanhedrin, who would later become the Apostle Paul, himself did not know it, God was working in his heart through Peter and John. And Peter and John had no idea that they were preaching to a future apostle and the greatest missionary that the church has ever seen. Listen, we have no idea how greatly God can use us. Verse 18, And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. They commanded them, so they are making it a law. It's illegal now to preach the gospel. You see, Satan hates that. He hates witnessing. He fears it. He will do anything he can to make you shut up in front of the world. Now, why does he hate the preaching of the gospel? It's because that's the means by which men and women are saved. So they're threatened here. The Jewish leaders say, it's illegal. We just passed a law. It's on the books. And the orders and the decisions of the Sanhedrin court were binding, except in the death penalty. The death penalty they had to refer to the Romans. The court's orders had to be obeyed or else Peter and John would face severe consequences. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Now this issue is so clear here. And Peter is the spokesman for Peter and John. It says Peter and John, but Peter is the one who's the spokesman. And Peter actually calls on the rulers to be the judges as to what the apostles should do. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you must judge. You are religious men, he implies. You know which is the higher authority. This issue is so clear that we must choose between one or the other. You tell us, which should we obey? Should we obey you or should we obey God? Now, it is so clear that these authorities couldn't say one word at this point. I mean, in the face of all of the evidence, the only thing they could say was obey God and not us but they are not about to do that. And so the only alternative is to threaten and to try to maintain control by the threat of force. These Jewish leaders feared the people who were convinced that this was an act of God. Then Peter and John say, verse 20, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now that is a great place to begin to witness. I mean, start there in your witnessing. Start with the things that you have seen and heard of. Don't use the excuse, you know, I, I can't witness for Christ because I don't have all of the answers. Because you have seen things, 
and you have heard things. You have seen changes in your life, and you have heard the truth that has changed your life. Share that. Just share the things that you have seen and you have heard, and then watch God add to it. That's where you begin. They said, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So there is a sense here in which Peter and John can't keep their mouths shut about Jesus. Now, this is quite a different Peter than the man who was afraid to speak up for fear of a little servant girl asking if he was a follower of Jesus. A servant girl scared him off. And now he's standing before the very tribunal of Israel itself and saying, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. There was a time when the prophet Jeremiah really got mad at God. I mean, he was so upset with God because he was thrown in jail for giving God's message. God said, go down and give them this message. And he went down and he gave them the message and they threw him in jail. And Jeremiah said, that's some way for you to treat your servant. I go down and do what you told me to do and now you let them throw me in jail. He said, I'm through, I resign. Here's my resignation, I've had it. I'm not gonna do this anymore. I'm never gonna speak in your name again. But then he said, Jeremiah 20 verse nine, but the word of God was in my bones like a burning fire and I could not but speak. That's what Peter is saying. He's saying, it's something that is burning in me. I cannot stop speaking the things which I have seen and the things which I have heard. Now, before we leave this little section here, we need to talk about civil disobedience, don't we? Because that's exactly what's happening here. This is a clear case of civil disobedience. These apostles were forbidden by the properly constituted authorities, the establishment, to preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John boldly told them to their faces that they would not obey them. And this incident has been used down through the centuries to justify many activities, especially in our day, such as racial strife, draft evasion, violent demonstration, shooting of people at abortion clinics, boycotts, strikes, and so on. You can't read this account without that question being raised. Is it right for a Christian to disobey a law because of his conscience? Well, the answer here, of course, was yes. But is it yes for us? I mean, what should be our guide? I mean, are we just to be guided by our own personal conscience? It is important to notice that from this account, that civil disobedience occurs here only because the conscience of Peter and John rested directly on a clear and unmistakable word of God, which went against the human law. Here then are the biblical grounds for civil disobedience. The scriptures are very clear that governments are given by God. Romans chapter 13, verse one through seven, it makes it unmistakable. The apostle Paul says there that the government authorities are the servants of God and those who resist them resist what God has ordained and they bring judgment upon themselves. He acknowledges that governments have certain powers derived not from the people, but given by God, the power to tax, the power to keep law and order, the power to punish evil doing, even to the point of death. 
The scriptures make perfectly clear that all this is right and that it is ordained by God and believers are exhorted to obey the authorities. Now, we need to always remember that human conscience, our conscience, operating alone, unsupported by the word of revelation, unsupported by the word of God, is not enough grounds to disobey the law. The law of man, even bad law, and there are some of them that are bad laws, the law of man is superior to conscience unless that conscience rests upon a direct word of God, you see? And that is what this account with Peter and John makes very clear. Listen, conscience is not intended to tell us right from wrong. Did you know that? Consciences can be wrong as well as right. In fact, apart from the help of revealed truth, the Word of God, everyone's conscience would be wrong and would lead us all astray. Listen to this quotation. It's from H.C. Trumbull, and I quote, Conscience is not given to a man to instruct him in the right, but to prompt him to choose the right instead of the wrong when he is instructed as to what is right. It tells a man that he ought to do right, but does not tell him what is right. And if a man has made up his mind that a certain wrong course is the right one, the more he follows his conscience, the more hopeless he is as a wrongdoer. One is pretty far gone in an evil way when he serves the devil conscientiously." End quote. The clear instruction of the Bible is that conscience is not to be followed unless it is based upon the Word of God, a clear and unmistakable command of God. So when the issue is in doubt, then law is superior to conscience. It is only when there is a clear-cut case of conflict between the Word and the will of God and the Word and the will of man, as in this case with Peter and John and the Sanhedrin, only at that point is conscience then superior to law. Did you get it? Just nod your head this way and we'll go on. So when the Sanhedrin, verse 18, called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor to teach in the name of Jesus, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. They all glorified God. You see, the people saw a lame man leap for joy and glorified not Peter and John, but God. Listen, we need to always keep our antennas up and our eyes open concerning ministries that are built upon men and around men and for men. The response to the healing of the lame man is how it should always be, people glorifying God. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way. <laughs>